We are in sort of a mini-series this morning. The title of the message, Offenses Against Faith. Last week in our time together, we considered, if we can call it this, part one of the concept of offenses in the Bible. We base this series off of our evening series. So if you've been following the evening series, whether here or online, on YouTube or on our website through the podcast, uh, you'll know that we've been walking through Luke. And several weeks ago in Luke chapter 17, uh, Jesus gave some words in regard to offenses. Jesus taught that it was inevitable that offenses must come. It is inevitable, he says, that offenses must come. And that concept of offenses, we recall, is a spiritual stumbling block, a stumbling block to faith, whether that be faith unto salvation or simply the faith of a person's spiritual life. He says it is impossible, but that offenses must come. But Jesus said, woe unto him through whom they come. There will always be people overthrowing the faith of others, confusing the faith of others uh, unto salvation or in their spiritual walk. But let it never be said that I, as a follower of Christ, would cause the faith of another to, to, to stumble, would cause someone to reject their faith or would cause their faith to become confused or overthrown. Better, Jesus says, that a millstone would be hung around your neck and you would be cast into the sea than that you would offend the faith of a brother or sister in Christ, that you would offend the faith of someone seeking Christ, even one who has not yet come to Christ. And last week's message, we considered those who offend truth. This week is offenses against the faith. Last week was offenses against truth. And we spoke of two primary categories, novices and false teachers or false prophets. We defined novices as people who teach false or misleading things about doctrine or, and practice uh, for no reason other than their own confusion or their spiritual immaturity or their ignorance or an imbalance in their faith. These are genuine believers by grace through faith. They are not attempting to get money out of people. They're not attempting to fleece the flock of God. They're not attempting to lead people away from truth. They've simply allowed some element of error to creep into their way of thinking because they are not doctrinally strong, they're not doctrinally stable, or they've not thought through everything, uh, and so they lead others away as well. The second group that we talked about were false teachers, what the Bible also calls false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are not believers. They are unbelievers who falsely represent themselves as having a relationship with Jesus Christ, but bear no fruit of salvation. They bear no marks of an understanding of grace. They try to teach something that they know nothing about. They may be excited about the Bible. They may be excited about moral things. They may be excited about religious things, but they don't, and they have not actually partaken of the things which they're serving. <laughs> They've not actually partaken of the things which they are expounding. They knowingly misrepresent the Bible for personal gain. They take advantage of men and women's faith. They take advantage of their desire to know God in order to lead them into a false gospel that fleeces the flock but gains for them money, fame, credibility, or any other number of carnal virtues. These are offenses against the truth. Offenses that would cause others either to reject the gospel altogether, which often happens, or cause those who have accepted the gospel to fall into doctrinal error, perhaps spiritual infancy, 
or simply to walk away from their faith, the practice of their faith. And I told you last week was more of a warning week. This week is going to be more of an exhortation week. Novices and false teachers, they're out there. We know that they're out there. And the warning was that we dare not allow these into our church, that we need to be careful that we are, are not allowing novices a platform. And we need to be careful that we're not allowing false teachers and false prophets the light of day as an authority over us, spiritually speaking. The offenses we talk about today, though, more as a warning, these are offenses that are regularly found even in functioning churches. We call them, I'll call them this morning, offenses against faith. This takes place when we as passionate believers who love the Lord and love our brethren fail to take into account the current spiritual condition of our brethren when making decisions for ourselves or when making decisions for our church. By failing to take our brethren into account, we can harm their faith, stunt their spiritual growth, or confuse them. This is not malicious. This is not even necessarily an element of ignorance. This might be an element of disagreement, but we allow this disagreement to overthrow their faith. We often call this principle the weaker brethren principle. And it will be our focus today. We're going to study three passages of Scripture. And we're going to, to, of course, just do overview fashion. I can't walk through three, nearly three entire chapters of Scripture in the time we have this morning. So it will be an overview fashion in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10. And I'm going to jump back and forth between them. My intent this morning is that in doing so, I'm going to be presenting all of the principles in play in a manner that will, will be cohesive and understandable. I, I pray that that will be the case this morning. I hope that it will. I pray that it will be a help and that it will take this principle of the weaker brethren and will boil it down to that which is clear and understandable and also accessible to you, though it's going to be a, a, a bit of you're going to get some information this morning. So buckle your seatbelts because it, it might be a little bit of a ride. And I'm going to begin with the verse that gave inspiration to this, this little mini-series. Uh, last week and this week on offenses. Next week I'm going to be talking about forgiveness. And these are the, again, I told you I preached this on Sunday evening. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said this. Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And if you go back and you listen to the passage, we recognize that little ones there is not actually speaking of children in age, but rather those who are young disciples or those who are uh, questioning or seeking in their faith and seeking to learn. Now with this in mind, the first passage of Scripture we'll consider this morning is actually 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. You know that 1 Corinthians uh, is a book of rebuke. I've preached through 1 Corinthians, and we've talked about that pretty considerably. And in chapter uh, 8, verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians, we read this. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything... He knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. 
So the controversy in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, is a controversy over touching things offered unto idols. The idea there would actually be to consume, uh, touching it with the intent of consuming it um, as far as food is concerned, and we'll see that as we go through the passage. Uh, eating foods that have been dedicated to false gods. In our time, we might, uh, uh, there's several different examples that we could draw out that this might relate to. Uh, we have many false gods in this world, many false gods in our society. Society. We can talk about materialism as a god. We can talk about sports as a god. We can talk about um, different uh, substances as gods in some people's lives. These are all false gods. And if we take the, the particular example today of, let's say, sports, and recognizing that e even today all around this nation, there are people that will travel to the cathedral of their sports stadium, and they will worship at their true god, which is the, the god of this sports team or the these particular people on their sports teams, um, we might liken that. That might be a good illustration, the idea of, of touching that which is, is offered unto idols, that we recognize that there is a competition between something else and God, and men have elevated something else to idolatry status. There's any number of things in this life which, while in themselves are not wrong, have been twisted by the world to become wrong. That's the idea. And that's the idea here. Meat is not wrong. Just like sports is not wrong, and just like um, uh, you know, owning stuff is not wrong. But by offering it to idols, they've taken the meat and they've used it for evil and anti-God purposes. And immediately Paul acknowledges that the discerning believer, he says, has knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. In other words, I know Paul says to the Corinthian church that you know that it's okay to eat that meat, that the idol is nothing, that we have the, this knowledge, that the meat is not wrong, even though the action is wrong. But Paul warns about knowledge, and he says this. He says, here's the thing about knowledge, church in Corinth. Knowledge has a tendency to make people arrogant. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge oftentimes makes the people that have it look down on those who don't. And that has no place in the church. That, that kind of an attitude, an attitude of looking down on others because they don't have the same ideas or concepts or knowledge as you of perhaps their liberties in Christ has no place in the church. Knowledge makes people arrogant. It puffs up. But love builds up. That's what the word edify means. Charity, love, edifies, builds someone up. To build someone up does not always mean you tell them what they want to hear. Doesn't always mean that they walk away from a conversation happy. To build someone up means you have made them better. You have made them better. Charity builds people up. Knowledge puffs you up and, and then causes you to tear people down. All throughout the church today, there are people that know, that, that think they know stuff, and so they tear others down. The church is full of people tearing each other apart today because they don't think this, or they don't believe that, or they don't understand that about the Bible, or they don't understand this about the Bible, and it causes us to tear one another apart. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. Charity builds up. There are two deeper principles here that Paul is speaking of. The first is that God hates pride. We know, in fact, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6. 
First Peter chapter five, verse five. And we're called to do all things unto edifying. That's the second principle. The first principle is, is that God hates pride. God resists the proud, even in the church, folks. The second principle is that we are to do all things unto edifying. Everything we do should be done to strengthen and build the faith of ourselves and the faith of those we interact with. This is commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Paul then says this. He says, if a man is lifted up in pride by his own perception of his knowledge and his discernment as it relates to spiritual things, he may actually know things, but he doesn't know what he ought to know. You may know a lot about the Bible, but if it causes you to be puffed up and if it causes you then to tear your brother down instead of build him up, you know nothing that you're supposed to know. You've missed it. You've missed the point. Because knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And so the knowledge and spiritual things might actually be working against you, not for you, as far as your spiritual relationship is concerned. He, he continues then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. He says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be many uh, as there be God's many and Lord's many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. So here we read the principle as it relates to spiritual knowledge, that the believer who understands his position in Christ, on the one hand, recognizes that idols are nothing. And so he has every liberty to partake of that meat, even if it has been dedicated or offered unto an idol. That the gods unto whom these people dedicate their meat are not true gods. That there are things that are called gods, both in heaven and in earth. Some people treat the earth like a god, but the earth isn't a god. Some people treat uh, the concept of aliens like gods, but they are not gods, often demonically inspired though they are. There is only one god. And those who worship other gods, like Paul told the Athenians, are worshiping that which they know not. They are ignorantly worshiping. But to us, we recognize that anyone who worships anything other than the true and living God is worshiping something that has no right to be worshiped. And that, to that end, there cannot be any benefit either to the worshiper or the thing being worshiped because neither one has, has any right to be in the position it's in. There is only one God, the Father, by whom are all things, and we in him through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we are by him. We are saved by him. So that means we should all get over this thing about evil in the world, right? That means that we should not refuse any association. That means that we should not refuse anything because we have knowledge and we know that idols are nothing, right? So that means that, that in every context, we ought to say, you just need to get over yourself if you're against that particular thing, if you're against Hollywood for, these, for, for the reasons of the evil that's there, or against this kind of uh, music industry because of the evils that's there, or you're against the sports realm because of the evils that are there, or you're against Halloween because of the evils that are there, or all of these different things. We just need to get over that, right? Because, because the gods are nothing. The gods are nothing. All those false gods are nothing. So we can partake in these things without incident, and we can enjoy these secular things Without, even though they give lip service to false gods and false ideas because they're just things. They're not real gods, right? That's right. You can. 
So then anyone who would have any trouble with these things is objectively wrong and we need to correct them, right? No. Not at all. Not even close. No. Consider what Paul would go on to write two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 19 to 23. What say I then, that an idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? No. We already know that, right? He covered that two chapters ago. They're nothing. But I say, he says, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot eat the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful to me. There it is, right? That's, that's 1 Corinthians 8. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Here we read Paul say that though the idol is nothing and that they which sacrifice to it is nothing, it has no spiritual power, it has no spiritual impact, it is empty, that doesn't mean implicitly that we should take part in it. Because even though they're just sacrificing to stone, there is a demonic inspiration that compels these people to worship something other than the true and living God. So in a manner of speaking, they are sacrificing not just unto an idol, but they are actually sacrificing unto the devils that oppose God and encourage idol worship. So Paul says, I would not have you have fellowship with devils. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devil at the same time. You can't be a partaker in the Lord's table, that would be the fellowship with God's people, and the table of devils simultaneously. God is jealous over our loyalty. And when our loyalty is split, even in testimony, there's a danger. And what we'll find as we get back to 1 Corinthians 10 later on in the service is that testimony is the big issue in this, in, in Paul's arguing here in 1 Corinthians 10. So Paul concludes that though all things are lawful, like we said in 1 Corinthians 8, that an idol is nothing, that the gods uh, are not gods. There's only one God, the true and living God, that that meat, though it's been offered unto an idol, is still just meat, and I can partake in it, even though it, it's, it's, it's an idol for, for many. By the same token, just because it's lawful doesn't make it expedient, doesn't make it best. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean that it's going to edify your brethren. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's not going to cause you or someone else around you to stumble. And that needs to become a primary factor in the determination of your liberties, folks. When you're deciding whether you should or shouldn't do something in this world, at the top of the list of considerations needs to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll see that as we continue. This is what, uh, remember what Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8. That those who truly know anything know that edification is far more important than knowledge. Your testimony and your brother's faith is far more important than your knowledge or your liberty. Aha! That means we shouldn't eat meat offered unto idols because they're sacrificed to devils, right? 
That means we shouldn't partake in Halloween as Christians because it's, it's a day for devils, right? That means we shouldn't enjoy sporting events because the, there are devils behind the world's worship of these, these people and these sports teams and the money and the, the, all of the evil surrounding it. That means we shouldn't support anything in Hollywood or shouldn't support anything coming out of the music industry because it, it, it has very clear demonic elements and, 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 and evil in it. That's right. You're absolutely right. So then anyone who's willing to engage in these things is objectively wrong and needs to be corrected, right? No. Not at all. Not even close. It is still lawful, isn't it? Though not expedient. Which means there are Christians who can engage in these. Now, again, uh, we'll get into this a little bit later. I'm not talking about actual objective sin. If I can go to chapter and verse, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, those things can never be done in liberty, can they? We're not talking about that. We're talking about meat offered unto idols. We're talking about things that are not intrinsically immoral in and of themselves, but can take on a moral status based upon how their, their associations, based upon how they're used in this world. They are still lawful, which means there are Christians who can engage in them without issue. And before we begin to learn about where to draw these lines, let me introduce you to the Romans 14 concept. In Romans 14, the issue is still faith, but this time rather than talking about meat offered to idols, the debate is law and tradition. And Paul is going to talk about eating meat again, but he's talking about elements beyond just eating meat. Uh, he's talking about also not just eating certain foods, but also whether we should um, observe certain days. So we to, uh, today at Legacy Baptist Church chose to sing a few Christmas songs, right? We don't do a lot in regard to Christmas at Legacy Baptist Church. Uh, we don't decorate the church. You might see these, these uh, fall flowers sw switch to poinsettias at some point. Um, that's not my venue, so I don't know when and, when and if that's going to happen. Um, but you might see that happen at some point, but we're not going to do a lot of Christmas things. It's not something that, that we focus on heavily as far as it goes. Um, but there are some people that do, and then there are some people that don't want it at all. There are some people that will put up Christmas trees. There are some people that will... The, the, the idea that, that some people regard a, a holiday and others don't regard a, whole, a holiday, that, that's going to be a part of this controversy in Romans 14. The idea that some people observed the Sabbath and others did not observe the Sabbath, that's going to be a part of this controversy in Romans 14. Whether Christians should eat certain foods, should observe certain holy days, should hold one day above another. And so Paul writes this in Romans 14, verse 1. He that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. We have here for the first time our introduction to the term, he that is weak in the faith. The idea of being weak in faith is that a believer is fully convinced in his heart that something is wrong or sinful that actually in itself is perfectly lawful. Or the reverse of that, that a believer is fully convinced in his heart that something is necessary and required that God, uh, 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 that actually God has not required, that in and of itself is not required of the believer. So it's a person who has either uh, said, I have to not do this or I have to do this, when the Bible doesn't explicitly say they must or must not do that. And the example Paul gives here is food, again. 
Uh, Paul gave an example of food there in 1 Corinthians 8. He gives the example of food here in Romans 14. Um, being a guy, I understand that. I'd use food too. Food uh, is on my mind somewhat regularly also. So Paul uses food here, and he says this. One believes you can eat all things. Another who is weak eats herbs. So there's a man who believes that all foods are open unto him, that God has sanctified all things so that he may eat meat and he may eat any meat. He is not constrained by the law, by the clean and unclean requirements of Jewish law. He is not constrained by the pre-flood requirements of only eating plants rather than animals. On the, other man, on the other hand, you have a man who, in the church, loves the Lord, wants to do what's right, and he looks back at the time, and perhaps he looks back to the law, and then he looks back at, at Genesis before the days of Noah, and he says, you know what? I want to submit myself to the diet, the pre the pre-flood, the pre-diluvian diet of just plants. I, had a, um, I, I grew up in a church that was this way. They had a guy come every once in a while and say how he, he felt that was the best thing to do, uh, the vegetarian, vegan diet, whatever, depending on, on, on uh, the, all, all of the different lines that people draw and whatnot. And so there was a group here in Romans 14 that genuinely believed that, that for the honor and the glory of the Lord, they should only eat plants fruits and vegetables, and not anything else. Now, Paul says that the ones who think they can eat everything, they're living within the knowledge that they have of Christ. They are the stronger in the faith. The ones who believe that they should only eat plants are the weaker in the faith. This is not a put-down to those who think they can only eat plants. This is not a put-down. It simply means that they have bound them, they feel compelled to bind themselves under something for the glory of God that is not fully bound in the word of God. That's not a bad thing. That's not a wrong thing for us to do. It's not wrong for me to say, well, the word of God doesn't explicitly say I can or, or, or I should or should not do this, but I'm going to bind myself to this because I believe it would please the Lord. That's okay. That's okay. I wear a suit every Sunday. I don't always wear the coat. Sometimes I'll do a vest and a tie instead or whatever. I, I vary it. I, I have a bolo tie I'll wear sometimes as well when I'm feeling particularly Western. But all of that's okay. But if I came in just a polo and, a, and, and, and some slacks, that would not be sin. But I have bound myself to a standard. I have my reasons why I've done it. And you know what? That's okay, too. That's okay. That's the idea here. I'm, I, I, I would be the weaker brethren in, that, in, in the clothing argument. Your pastor would be the weaker brethren. That's not a put down to me. That's simply where I stand. Okay, So Paul says to the strong in the faith, to the one who eats all things, receive the weak in faith and don't receive them just to fight with them. Don't receive them to doubtful disputations. Don't receive them just to tell them how wrong they are and how they don't know their Bibles well. Don't do that. Don't fight with them. Don't argue with them. And even more than that, don't look down on them for their conviction. They have every right to hold that conviction. Likewise, Paul says to the weak in faith, the one who only eats plants, don't argue with your, your brethren that are stronger in the faith over it. And even more than not arguing with them, don't judge them for their conviction that they can eat meat. So this is the problem. Those who are strong in faith tend to look down upon those who are weaker in the faith, thinking that somehow they know more than the others do and so that they're somehow more spiritual or better. 
The weak in faith have a tendency to judge those that are stronger in the faith because they're doing something that the, the, the stronger in faith is not, right? So in other words, in this clothing illustration, the person that sits in, in, in polo and a slacks would have a tendency to judge Pastor Wickler and say, well, Pastor Wickler just doesn't understand his liberty and he's just, he's, he just doesn't understand the Bible well. And then Pastor Wickler has a tendency to look at the person in the polo and slacks and say, well, that person just doesn't understand how to honor the Lord with his dress. I'm judging. They're looking down on me. Paul says, stop it. Stop it. The weak in faith, stop judging. The strong in faith, stop looking down on. Stop it. And that's the idea with the interaction between these two. So we continue in Romans 14, verses 4 through 6. He says this. He says, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another man esteemeth every day alike. Every, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day regardeth it uh, uh, to, um, excuse me, here. Uh, he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord for he giveth thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not and giveth God thanks. Paul asks, who are you to judge another man's servant? Imagine if you went to work tomorrow and the boss from next door came over and started telling you what you were doing wrong with your job. Imagine if tomorrow your neighbor's husband came into your home and started telling your wife why she shouldn't, what she should and shouldn't be doing in your home. They have no right to judge your actions. They have no right. That's your boss's job. Your boss's job is to judge whether or not you're doing a good job. Your husband's job is to judge whether or not you're doing a good job. So, so leave me alone. It's, that, that's, that's my boss's prerogative. That's my husband's prerogative. Leave me alone. You're not my boss. Paul is saying this. Every person in this room will answer to God. Every person in this room will stand before God one day and will answer for the choices that you have made. You won't answer. The, the, uh, at the Bama seat, it will not be Jesus sitting there in judgment with your pastor at his right hand, judging you. It's not going to be that way. It will not be Jesus with your husband or Jesus with your church. It will be Jesus. He is the one who you will answer to. You will answer to God. If a man's actions are evil... God has a way of making them known to the individual or to the church. Now, again, we're not talking about objective sins here. If I can open the word of God to thou shalt not bear false witness and you're bearing false witness and I tell you that, that's God judging you through his word. It's not me judging you. That's, that's me telling you what God has said. That's me telling you what you're doing is wrong. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about liberties, okay? We're talking about our liberty in Christ. So he says... One man esteems one day above another. Some of us hold Sunday in very high regard. We disallow certain things on Sunday that we would allow on other days. We've chosen to do that. That's fine, as long as it is virtuous and we do it with thanksgiving unto the Lord. Some of us treat Sunday like any other day. 
You don't, uh, you know, at the, you, you'll, you'll leave today and everything's fair game. Just like any other day, you'll, you'll go do whatever. And that's fine as long as it's virtuous and done with thanksgiving as unto the Lord. Some of us will eat all things with thanksgiving. And that's fine as long as it is virtuous and we do it as unto the Lord. Some of us won't eat certain things. And that's fine as long as it's virtuous and we do it as unto the Lord. Some of us regard certain holidays. And some of us don't regard certain holidays. Some of us have reasons. And, and we have our reasons. That's fine as long as it's virtuous and it's done with thanksgiving as unto the Lord. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind that by whatever actions he has chosen, they are both right and pleasing to God according to God's will. So Paul continues. For none of us liveth to himself, verse 7, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? And why dost thou set at naught thy brother? Why do you set him aside? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Here's the point. You and I are not our own. And if we are a properly adjusted church, if you are a properly adjusted believer, then what you do and what you don't do is tirelessly devoted to what pleases God and what God wants you to do. If that's not it, then that's a whole other conversation for another day. If you don't care what God thinks and you're not dedicating yourself to doing what you believe God actually wants you to do, you've got carnality in your life or you're not a believer, one or the other, there's something wrong with your spiritual walk with the Lord. There's something wrong if you don't think about pleasing God with your actions. If you don't want to please God with what you do, there's something wrong. This is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fact that you and I know that we are not our own, that we are the Lord's, that we are called not to live for ourselves, but to live for God. And if my heart is full of love for God and dedicated for service unto God, and I happen to believe that I can eat all things, praise the Lord for that. And if my heart is full of love for God and dedicated unto service to God, and I happen to believe that it would not please the Lord, that I should not eat certain foods, that's okay too. Praise God for that. That's okay. We're the Lord's. And the point is that we need to be dedicated to the Lord. Jesus died for the persons who regard the Sabbath just as he died for those who didn't. Jesus is the Lord of both of them. So then why are we so busy judging our brethren for their choices? Why are we so busy judging our brethren for their choices? Why do we write them off just because of their choices? We will stand before God and we will be judged. We'll stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And assuming that this day strikes fear into your heart as it ought to, then we must believe that the things a believer is doing is because they have reconciled them with their faith if they're not explicitly sinful. And if they haven't reconciled them with their faith, then it means that they are sinning, not explicitly because of what they're doing, but because they are doing it outside of the will of God for them. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And they'll answer to God for that as well. Because each of us will give an account to God for our choices as to whether we did them in faith. Can you do what you do truly in faith? If you can do it in faith, honestly before the Lord, like actually honestly, not like Balaam honestly, where he said he was doing it for the Lord, but the Lord was resisting him at every turn. 
But if you can genuinely open the Word of God, say there's nothing in, in the Word of God that hinders, and you can search your own heart in the Spirit of God and say there's nothing in, of conviction in this, I'm okay to do this, and if you can do that, then why should I judge you for your conscience? I shouldn't. But you still know that you'll answer to God for it one day. And if that day means to you what it actually means, then that will mean something to you that you'll answer to God for it someday. That day should mean something to you. Each of us will give an account to God for our choices as to whether or not we did what we did in faith, aligned with God's will for us, and whether we did what we did for self and for rebellion, in which case we'll be judged. So then what really matters? If we should not judge each other's liberties in Christ, what should we really care about? What really matters? Verse 13 of Romans 14. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. Here it is. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus, and we've read this in 1 Corinthians 8, and we read this in 1 Corinthians 10, that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that, that esteemeth any day to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. You're not walking in love towards your brother if you're doing something in front of him, before him, that grieves him. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that is that in these things serveth Christ, here it is, is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things are indeed are pure, but it, it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or, made, or is made weak. So what do we judge? Gave you a bit of a chunk here of, of scripture. We judge whether we are living in such a manner that we aren't causing a brother in Christ to stumble because of our choices as related to our liberties and their choices as related to their liberties. And remember, Paul is specifically talking to the, weak, uh, uh, to the strong in faith about having love, compassion, and consideration for the weak in faith. For those who believe that they do not have the liberties that the Bible tells us we have, or who have bound themselves to some of those things. In other words, one of the burdens of understanding your liberty in Christ is that you are called to protect the faith of those who don't understand these things so that they don't stumble. We'll talk about what this looks like in a little bit. Now, Paul said in verse 14 that he was persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is in itself unclean. Nothing in this world is inherently unlawful or unclean as far as objects go. As I've mentioned, there are obviously unlawful actions. There are obviously unlawful things, and they're listed in the Bible. Lies and pride and adultery and stealing and murder. They are unlawful because there is no possible way that you can do them in faith. And the condition is faith, right? If I can do it in faith before the Lord with thanksgiving, then it's okay. 
Can I ever lie in good faith before the Lord? Can I ever steal in good faith before the Lord? Can I ever murder in good faith before the Lord? Can I ever commit adultery in good faith before the Lord? These are things that are explicit in the scripture. There's no way around those. But as far as material things, objects, holidays, those sorts of things that we're speaking of, amusements, they, nothing is in itself unclean. But, Paul would say, if your weaker brother sees you exercising your liberties in Christ and it deeply grieves him and it caused him to be troubled in his faith and it causes him to feel as though he is uh, doing something wrong or he sees it as something legitimately wrong and you just participate in it anyway, you are acting in a manner towards your weaker brethren which is not loving. You are not being loving to continue that activity in his presence. So Paul says, don't allow your good to be evil spoken of. And this is what's happened in the church today. This is how legalism, the, 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 the pendulum swings from legalism to, um, to the, this, this um, uh, um, license, right? So we, we have legalism on the one end and we have license on the other end and people live in legalistic homes and then they realize that all this stuff that they've been told is so evil is actually not evil before the Lord and so the pendulum swings over to license and now they're doing legitimate real evil before the Lord but they swung there because they're so far against what happened in their legalistic background. And then there are those that are living in license and they finally realize God actually is like holy and, and they're, 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 they were supposed to be separated. And so they go bam and they go way over to legalism and they're there because they're trying to be safe from anything that might be possibly licensed. And you know, as with many places in, in, in scripture, God is kind of right about here, right? And then we're gonna have people on either end of the spectrum that, that, where, where there's some of that wiggle room, that's our liberty, that's where we are, in the middle there. So the kingdom of God is not about whether or not I eat meat. The kingdom of God is not about whether or not I regard one day above another. The kingdom of God is not about whether or not I regard a holiday. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not about your doings, it's about your relationship with God. And this is not to give you license. As a matter of fact, I wish we could go to Galatians, we could talk about that. Only use not your liberties as an occasion unto the flesh, Paul says in Galatians. But by love serve one another. It's the same concept, it's everywhere in scripture. It's Romans, it's 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians, it's, it's Galatians, he's got it everywhere. It's a pretty important topic that we pretty well ignore in the church. Don't destroy the kingdom of God. Don't ruin relationships with fellow believers. Don't sever ties over things for which God has, has said men have liberty to do. Don't threaten the faith of weaker brethren over these trifling issues. We have enough to wrestle with against the world, the flesh, and the devil without wrestling against our Christian brethren over these things. But our brethren in Christ make a much easier target than the world, the flesh, and the devil, don't they? Because in order to fight the world, I actually have to come out of the world. In order to fight the flesh, I actually have to deny the flesh. In order to fight, to contend with the devil, I need to put on the whole armor of God, spend time agonizing in prayer. I have to fight the devil. And you know what's a lot easier than this? You know what's a much easier way to feel godly? To nitpick my brethren in Christ to judge them on their standards. It's much easier. So Paul continue, concludes in Romans 14 saying this, Hast thou faith? 
Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is, uh, excuse me, I missed the phrase here. Happy, uh, no, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Do you have the faith to do some things that other Christians struggle with? We're a fairly conservative church. We have, uh, we, we hold to like-minded understanding of, of, of many things, and we're all in a different spectrum as far as some standards are concerned, but we're a fairly conservative church. Do you have the faith to do some things that you know other people in this room would really struggle with seeing you do? Keep it to yourself. Have faith among yourself. If you want to engage in that, in that activity that you are 100% confident is, is okay before the Lord, do it. Just don't do it when that person that's going to struggle with it is around. Have faith to yourself. Happy, happy is the man, the woman. Happy are you if you can do that which God has allowed you to do according to your liberty without a fit of conscience about it. That's a blessing because you do have the liberty. So if you have the liberty to do it, then praise the Lord when you can do it. But that's not when your brother who might stumble is around. That's not the time. Because of what? Because the man that doubts in his heart is damned if he eats, not to perdition, but his sins, because he eats not in faith. Here's the idea. The illustration is this, that you are going to eat meat that's been offered unto an idol, and you're okay with it. And right as you, you, you've, you've grilled up the steak, and it's delicious, and right as you grill up the steak, your buddy comes over that doesn't believe he can eat meat offered to idols. And, and he says, but I'm really hungry. And you say, well, eat the meat. And he says, but I don't know. And no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's your liberty. Eat the meat. And so he eats the meat. But you know what? He still feels as though he shouldn't be doing it. Here's what just happened. Though it's not wrong for him to eat the meat, in order to eat the meat, he positioned his heart to rebel against God because he feels it's wrong to eat the meat. So by eating the meat, even though it's not objectively wrong for him to do so, he had to position his heart into a place of rebellion against God to be willing to eat the meat. Which means even though it wasn't sin for you, it was sin for him because he was in his heart intending to rebel against God by eating the meat. If you're the one that has faith, that recognizes your liberties, the last thing you should ever do is try to pressure a weaker brethren into doing something that they do not think is right. Because even if something is lawful, if in their heart they genuinely believe it to be sin and they do it anyway, it is sinful to them. It is sin to them. Why? Because they believe it to be sin. Which means in order for them to do it, they had to position their heart into a place of rebellion. Whether or not eating the meat is a sin, if they think it's a sin and they do it anyway, what's in my heart at the moment that I'm doing something I think is a sin, even if it's not? In my heart must be rebellion. Right? That is what must be in my heart if I'm doing something that I think is a sin, even if 10 years down the road I find out it wasn't. If I did it when I thought it was sin, there's rebellion in my heart. That's why we can say, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. May I give you an illustration? I'm seeing some blank stares. I don't know if you're with me on this. This is a hard concept. I tell my child that they may have a piece of candy. So they climb up on the counter, they get a piece of candy. 
They've done nothing wrong here. There is nothing wrong here. Everything is right. I told them they could have a piece of candy. They got a piece of candy. The next day, I tell my child they may not have a piece of candy, but they climb up on the counter and they get a piece of candy anyway. Now, even though they just did the same action, right? One day, they climbed up, they got a piece of candy. It was okay. The next day, they climbed up and got a piece of candy, but I told them they could not. Now, that, that same action is, is not okay. It's wrong. It's... it's, it's Wrong on two, in, in two counts. First, it's disobedience. Second, it's rebellious. It's disobedient because I told them they couldn't. It's rebellious because them, knowing they couldn't do it, did it anyway. Third scenario. The next day, I tell them that they can have a piece of candy. They are allowed to have a piece of candy, but they didn't hear me. And so they don't think they can have a piece of candy but they climb up anyway and they get a piece of candy. This is sin as well. This is wrong as well. Because even though I told them that they, could, uh, that they could have one, they didn't think that they could. So is it disobedience? It's not. It's not. Because I told them they could have one. But is it still rebellion? It is. Because they didn't think they could have one, but they took one anyway. Okay? The first scenario, no disobedience, no rebellion. The second scenario, both disobedience and rebellion. The third scenario, no disobedience because it's lawful, but rebellion because they didn't think it was lawful. That's the weaker brethren principle. That if I encourage someone to do something that they don't think is lawful, even if it's not disobedience, it is rebellion. And so it's sin to them. Whatsoever, therefore, is not of faith is sin. Therefore, in a very real way, you and I could perform the same action on any given day, and it could be fine for you before the Lord, but sinful to me. And this is a concept that I often call the danger of grace. We're called to live a life not by a checklist of do's and don'ts. Grace is a much higher standard than just a checklist of do and don'ts, isn't it? I mean, think of everything that we've covered today. That means that, what does it mean? What does it mean to live this kind of a life? To live this kind of a life where I'm living in my liberty, where I'm binding myself where I feel I need to bind myself, where I'm freeing myself where I feel I need to free myself, where I'm regarding the brethren so I'm not causing them to stumble. What does it take to live that way? I'll tell you what it takes. It takes walking in the Spirit. It takes a daily relationship with the Lord. It takes a moment-by-moment -moment communion with God to be right with Him and to have my motives and my heart right before Him. That's a whole lot harder than a checklist, isn't it? That, that, that's, that is, that, that's this life of grace, though. Now, God has enabled us to do it through His Spirit, and this is where blessing is found. We're called to live life by the grace of the Son of God who loved us and who gave Himself for us. It's not for me to tell you how to live your life. It's for you to search the will of the Spirit, to search the will of God, and to determine to live your life as unto the Lord. It is for you to live life with everything on the table so that if at any given time God tells you he wants something that you have, you give it to him. Likewise, if at any time God frees you to have something that maybe he didn't even free you to have before, to live in a liberty that he didn't have, that, that you take that liberty and that you run with it. That's the life of grace. Now with that teaching in mind, we're, we're moving right along here, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is what we read last time. Paul has just taught that idols are nothing, that meat uh, sacrificed to them is no worse off than any other meat. He picks up then in verse 7. 
He says this, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of idols, uh, of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Not every man or woman understands their liberties in Christ, and that's okay. And when a weaker brethren, as Paul described it in Romans chapter 14, Paul terms them here those that are without knowledge, when they eat the meat, not as simply meat, because they know that... the. the um, um, when, when they won't eat the meat, right? Because they believe that it has something. Excuse me. Let me let, let me uh, reformulate the thought here. Those that are weaker, the weaker brethren, they eat the meat not simply as meat, but rather they eat it as something offered unto an idol, right? And if they are to eat the meat as something offered unto an idol, then it's sin to them, because they're eating it as if it's dedicated unto an idol. But if you can parse in your mind the difference between the meat and the false god, then you can eat without problem. That's the idea here. But here's the thing. We are not better for eating the meat, nor are we worse for not eating the meat, or better for not eating the meat and worse for eating the meat. That's, our standards don't commend us to God. But I'll tell you what does commend us to God, our love for the brethren. Our love for the brethren commends us to God. So Paul warns, take heed that your liberty to eat meat does not become a stumbling block to the weaker brethren. Then Paul gives an illustration. Um, verses 10 through 13. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat at an idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother perish? For whom Christ died, but when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin, their conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. If a weaker brethren sees you who has knowledge eating meat in an idol's temple, their conscience will be emboldened to eat there as well. But they can't eat there because to them it would be sin. But they do it, therefore it is to them sin. So even though you aren't sinning by eating the meat or by sitting down in that temple to eat the meat, it's emboldening the weaker brethren to sin and therefore to rebel against God. And so the exercise of your liberty has caused a brother to plunge headlong into rebellion. And you say, well, that's their problem. On the authority of Scripture, it's not just their problem. It's your problem, too. It's your problem, too. And so you sin against your brother when you do this. You, you sin against his weak conscience. And the Bible says that when you sin against your brother, you are sinning against Christ, who died for him. So your liberty becomes a sin, not just to them, but also to you, because you have caused the brother to sin. So it is, Paul determines, that if meat will cause the brother to offend, what does he say? He says, if meat causes my brother to offend, I will eat no meat. If that's what it takes, I will never eat meat again. Paul would much rather bind his liberty to his brother's conscience than to offend the conscience of his, of his brother for his sake of his liberty. And why does it matter so much? Let's remember why it matters so much. 
because Jesus told us it is better that a millstone be hung around a man's neck and he be thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of, one of the followers of Christ. Paul saw this as a really serious issue because Jesus saw this as a really, really serious issue. That's a pretty serious statement Jesus is making there. And that's why Paul thought it to be serious as well. So we've covered Romans 14. We've covered 1 Corinthians 8 now. We've, we've settled 1 Corinthians 8. Now let's settle the score with 1 Corinthians 10. Let's, let's round this out and then we'll apply. Uh, this is what we, we were talking about last time, that, that the Gentiles sacrificed these things unto false gods, unto idols, and he would not that we should have fellowship with devils. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, but all things don't edify. We need to be careful that we are not in testimony having fellowship with devils, causing others to, to be confused through our muddied associations, right? Because while all things are lawful, not everything builds up our brethren. He continues then with an illustration in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 24 to 28. He says this, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered and sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it and for, the con and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are called to seek the best of, the, of those that are around us at all times. So Paul says, if it's sold in the market, just don't ask. Just don't ask and just enjoy it. Just eat it. If it's sold in the shambles, don't even ask whether it's sacrificed unto idols. It's your liberty to eat it one way or another, so you don't have to ask. So just, just, just do it. To that end, he says, if someone bids you to a feast, if an unbeliever bids you to a feast, and you're predisposed to go, okay, yeah, I'll go to the, that feast. But uh, someone comes up to you and says, hey, let's go to this feast in honor of said idol. Or you get to the feast and they say, we are, we are at, this feast is unto an idol. Well, at that point, you should refuse, not because you don't have the liberty to do it, but because by, by, by exercising your liberty to do it, you might mar the testimony of Christ before that unbeliever, or you might mar the testimony of Christ before another believer, or you might cause another believer to stumble in their faith and so cause them to fall into sin. For the sake of conscience and for the sake of testimony, even though the meat is no more tainted now that you know it's been offered to idols than that it hasn't been, watch your testimony. Testimony. Watch your testimony. If there are things in this world that are still deeply associated with evil and rebellion, it is your liberty, perhaps, as a Okay, so, so uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying this to attack anyone today, but let me just give you an example, all right? Please don't take this as an attack. I'm calling this a liberty issue, all right? So this is not a... I'm not calling anyone a dirty, rotten sinner here. But let's take the concept of tattoos today. Tattoos are becoming very popular in Christian circles. However, if you talk to people about tattoos in the secular world, it's still deeply associated with rebellion, isn't it? It's still deeply associated with rebellion. Now you have a choice to make. It is your liberty to have a tattoo. It's not a sin to have a tattoo explicitly. But will having that tattoo enhance your testimony for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Enhance your testimony of what it means to be a believer. That's the question you've got to answer. That's the, is it so associated with rebellion today still in the world or in the church that it is going to cause a brother to stumble? 
Is it going to cause a, your pastor to think twice about having you hand out the offering plate if you've got a big tattoo coming up your neck? Is that, what he wants the, is that who he wants the church to be represented by? If it's going to hinder your capacity for ministry because your pastor may not want your church to be represented by a guy that has, has a big tattoo or a man bun or something like that, well, then maybe you should consider changing that or not doing that for the sake of ministry. That, that's the idea. It's your liberty, but all things being lawful are not necessarily expedient. What is, what, what is it going to do to your testimony by taking that action? That's the idea. I hope that that's clear. Verses 29 to 31. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I, by grace, be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Here's his answer. He just asked a couple questions. His answer is this. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Conscience is what matters. Not just yours, not even primarily yours, but the conscience of your brethren. One may ask, why should my liberty be judged? Why should my liberty be judged by my brother's conscience? I, I hear this you know, among Christians regularly. Why should my liberty be judged by my brother's conscience? If they've got a problem with me doing something, that's their problem. That's not my problem. If they've got a problem with what I wear or they've got a problem with where I, where I go, that's their problem. That's not my problem. And if I am doing what I'm doing under grace so that it is not sinful, when I am evil spoken of for those things which I do under grace, uh, wh why? why? Why would I be that way? Why should I be evil spoken of? Why should I bind my liberty to another brother's conscience? This is why. Because whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do you do it to the glory of God. And if at, at a particular moment in time, if exercising my liberties at a particular moment in time does not glorify God because it harms a weaker brother or it mars my testimony before the world, or if my exercising of my liberties uh, muddies those waters at this particular time, then I'm not doing it to the glory of God. So just stop. Just stop. Just bind your liberty to another man's conscience. Bind your liberty to a testimony. And then if, 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 if it's something you can do later when they're not around, do it. You have every liberty to do that. Happy is the man who is, who is not condemned for that which he can do freely. Verses 29 to 33. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 9. I skipped over 1 Corinthians 9, but that's where Paul was talking about his own liberties and all of the liberties that he has, and how he becomes all things to all men that he may by all means win some. That's a liberty discussion. Not a sin discussion, a liberty discussion. So Paul says, give none offense. Cause none to offend in any culture. If you're around Jews, eat kosher. If you're around Gentiles, eat their meats. Don't do anything for yourself. Do everything for the building up of others. Think of others at all times, folks. That's, that's the moral of this story. Think of others at all times. To this end, that many may profit, that many may be saved, that believers can be built up in their faith, that others can be led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the point. All of that bickering and arguing and fighting and tearing each other down, 
if, if we're not helping others become more godly or helping others get to God, what are we doing here, right? Make every action glorify God for the good of all who will watch you do them. Let's apply briefly this afternoon. Still morning, still morning. Your brother's conscience, number one, is more important than your liberties. Your brother's conscience is more important than your liberties. Nobody wants to hear this, but it doesn't change it. If a person believes a woman should only wear skirts and you genuinely before the Lord don't share their understanding of that issue, when they come over to your house, tell your wife to put on a skirt. When you go over to their house, put on a skirt, women. If that's what they believe, if it's going to cause a problem, just do it. It's not that big of a deal. Bind your liberty to their conscience. If a person believes that Sunday should be a dedicated day of rest and you genuinely before the Lord don't share your understanding of that issue, don't ask them to do things on Sundays. Don't make everything on a Sunday. It's not a big issue. If that's what they believe before the Lord, praise God for that. If a person believes you should not, that, they, that they should not eat certain foods or drink certain drinks or go to certain places and you genuinely before the Lord don't share their understanding of the issues, don't eat those foods, don't drink those drinks, don't go to those places when they're there. Don't offer it to them. Why should my liberties by, be limited by their conscience? Because it's far better for you to sacrifice your liberty in their presence than that you would run the risk of offending their faith. Because if you offend their faith, it would be better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast into the sea. Seek, quite literally at any cost, not to offend a fellow believer in Christ. I'm not quite ready for that point yet. That doesn't mean you can't talk with them about these things either, folks. Okay? People under, everyone's understanding changes over time, right? So if you're the stronger brethren and you're, you're with the weaker brethren, and if they ask questions about your liberty, well then discuss your liberty. Discuss that. Don't argue with them about your liberty. Don't tell them that they're in the wrong. And if they want to argue with you, instead of doing so, just use it as an opportunity to discuss with them. If they say, hey, you're sinning because you don't do this or because you do do that, reply, well, I respect your concern and I'm grateful that you care enough to tell me these things. Can we talk about our, our liberties in Christ sometime? Take them to Romans 14. Take them to 1 Corinthians 8. Take them to 1 Corinthians 10. Open the Bible and say, where, where, where does this fit into the principle that we're talking about today? Listen to them and listen to them for this reason. Maybe they're right. Maybe you have a blind spot. Or maybe you'll say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to start binding myself a little bit to that too because I believe it would be a better way, better example to my children or a better, a better way to do things. Maybe. But if not, then patiently show them what the Bible says. Show them what the Bible says. Respect their position. Honor their conscience. And then when they leave, go for it. Do what you were doing. So your brother's conscience is more important than your liberties every time. And if it be necessary, you should never again do something that you have every liberty to do rather than once offend the conscience of a brother. Pastor, that's unreasonable. Take it up with God. I don't know what else to tell you. Jesus' language is pretty harsh in, in Luke 17. Paul is pretty clear in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. Point number two, principles of offenses of faith, what we might call the principles of the weaker brethren. Three principles here that I want to make you aware of quickly. 
When you're interacting with those who lack knowledge, we should be aware of each of the scenarios that Paul gives throughout these passages of Scripture. First, the presence principle. When someone is around that has a weaker conscience, bind yourself to their conscience. When they are not around, you are at liberty to do what you are at liberty to do, but not in their presence if they have a problem with it. Now, in this, if, if uh, you're doing something that they feel like they should not do and you look at them and say, hey, are you okay with me doing this? And they say, yeah, I get it. You're within your liberties in Christ. I'm not going to partake, but you can? Okay, then you can. Because you're not going to harm their conscience. You're not going to harm their conscience. Because they've already told you you're not going to harm their conscience. But if you might harm their conscience, abstain until you know. Ask them, would, would this be a problem for you? If they say yes, it would be a problem for me. Then don't do it. Don't do it. Second, the pressure principle. Never, ever, ever pressure a believer to do something which they think is wrong. Never, ever. If they do something against their conscience for your sake or because of your pressure, you have led them to rebel. You have sinned against your brother and so you've sinned against Christ. Avoid this at all costs. Don't get puffed up. Don't get arrogant thinking you know everything and so getting other believers to live out liberties that they don't understand or don't believe in. Now, if they say, I know it's a liberty, but I just don't feel comfortable doing it, there's some things that I grew up, because I, I grew up in a semi-legalistic church, there are some things that I just struggle to do even though it's my liberty. Okay, well, that's just a struggle, right? If somebody comes up and says, hey, let's do this, and I say, well, I struggle to do this, but I know it's my liberty, so if you want to help me uh, get over that, that's fine. Well, that's fine. Put a little pressure on me. But not if... Not if I feel it's wrong. The third is the testimony principle. The testimony principle is this. Don't do things if you know that it will mar the testimony of Jesus Christ before others. If it has a bad reputation in society so that by doing so you're going to mar the testimony of Jesus Christ in society, don't do it. If it has a bad reputation in your church but you just want to stick it to your church to show them liberty, just don't do it. Don't mar the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ through your actions believer, uh, uh, before believers or unbelievers. Third and final point this morning, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. There are certain things that simply cannot be done in faith, right? I cannot commit adultery in faith. I cannot lie in faith. Although there's debate about that one, the, the, the Hitler principle, right? What would you do if you were hiding Jews? It's not what we're talking about today, right? I cannot disobey my parents in faith. I cannot hate my brother in faith. I cannot worship an idol in faith. I cannot be arrogant in faith because these things cannot please God because they're not in faith. Again, I'm not trying to nitpick and, and we could nitpick scenarios, gray areas, whatever you want to call it. That's not what I'm talking about, right? We all know that there's certain things that we can't do in faith. We're not talking about those today. But there are many things that you can do in faith that you can do in faith which perhaps I cannot or that I can do in faith which perhaps you cannot. There are many things like this in our world. The strong in faith should not despise the weak. The weak in faith should not judge the strong. Instead, let's just make sure that none of us is sinning. Let's just make sure that we're caring for one another, that we love one another. If your conscience genuinely before the Lord won't allow you to do something, then just don't do it. Because if you do, it's sin to you, even if it's not sin to me. If your conscience genuinely before the Lord allows you to do something that the Bible doesn't forbid, then enjoy it. If you can do it in faith, it isn't sin to you unless by doing so you will cause a brother to stumble, which means the responsibility is heightened upon those that have knowledge. You've got extra responsibility if you're living in your liberties, if you understand your liberties. And that's a part of having liberty. 
Liberty always comes with responsibility, doesn't it? Liberty is never separated. Talk about government, talk about spiritual, whatever. It doesn't matter. Anytime liberty is around, responsibility is necessarily there. Because where there's more liberty, there's also more responsibility. And whatsoever is not a faith is sin. It's impossible, Jesus said, but that offenses will come. The faith of men and women will be overthrown in this world. The conscience of followers of Christ will be harmed by others in this world. This is inevitable in a sin-sick world. But, brothers and sisters in Christ, ending our little mini-series on offenses today, let it never once be named among us. Let it never be said of you that your liberties, that your knowledge has caused you to be puffed up, to argue, or to despise. Let it never be said that your weak conscience caused you to judge another believer. Rather, let us love one another and let all things be done to build one another up. Let all things be done unto edifying. And let us be sure that whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God.